Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Goodison Park. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the Royal Blue Podcast. I'm your host, Conor O'Neill, joined today by the Echo's Everton correspondent, both home and away, Joe Thomas, as we reflect on the club's mid-season tour to Australia, the FA Cup draw, which obviously is not too kind to the Blues, which was made on Monday night, and look ahead of what's to come in the coming weeks as the World Cup takes centre stage in the footballing calendar. But today, me and Joe will look back on the club's mid-season tour of Australia, as I said, as Joe was the only British journalist out there covering the Blues for the whole duration of the trip. Joe, start off with then, how was Bondi Beach? <laughs> yeah, Bondi Beach was, was was pretty nice to be fair. I don't want anyone to think that it was it was too much of a of, of a jolly, but yeah, if I, I did have one of the then Joe what didn't spend his whole trip on the beach. <laughs> <laughs> I did I did have a little window of opportunity. I was out for anybody who was listening, I wasn't out there as long as the club. I got there on Saturday morning and then I came back first thing Thursday morning. So so I arrived Saturday morning, there was game on Sunday, had Monday and Tuesday, game on Wednesday. And I basically left the Combank Stadium after the 5-1 win over Western Sydney Wanderers at about 11 o'clock on Wednesday night, Australian time. It's about an hour outside central Sydney. And um, yeah, pretty much got back to my hotel and then checked out and then went to the airport straight away. So there was a, there was a, lot, of, there was a lot of writing and reporting being done in the back of taxis and on trains and things like that. And whilst I was packing my luggage away but obviously it was a privilege to be able to go out there and, and you know it's a privilege to have a job following the Blues in general Everton are, a, Everton are a massive massive club so many people want to detract from them and things like that but you know they're still what an absolutely huge huge club and being able to follow them and get paid to watch them is just an absolute and meet so many fans is it's just something that I'm so grateful to do and very appreciative of and you know obviously you managed to find some little windows of opportunity to do a little bit of sightseeing in Australia, but really it was a case of, you know, this was a, a rare, op- I mean, obviously we're in unprecedented times of a break in mid season, but with the way that the season or the first part of the season did end with Leicester, Bournemouth, Bournemouth, and bearing in mind, we know what happened last year and we know what awaits us when Everton return on, on, on boxing day. Actually, it felt like quite a significant time to be able to go out there and speak to the people you know, in the know, really, that you know, get a get a glimpse inside, you know, behind the curtains of what's going on in that dressing room, really, because as much as a lot of Everton fans completely understandably might want to just draw the curtains and just try and ignore football for the next few weeks, these are actually really, really significant times. You know, I don't think anybody can be under any illusion that Everton are in a battle this season. Hopefully it's one that they'll be able to pull away from sooner rather than later and not end up in a situation like they were last season. But the way that that final week went and the way the momentum was just as coming into this break, you know, I think a lot of us have, have, have got serious concerns. So, so I actually think it was quite important to be out there just to be able to, you know, to have that opportunity to 
to speak to the likes of Frank Lampard and some of the players, some of the people, get a glimpse of what was going on and be able to report it back, really. Because obviously a lot of people are worried and they want to know what the thought process is behind a lot of things are and what the plan is as well. And, and hopefully, if you've read any of my reporting, and hopefully because you're listening to this, we'll get a little we'll be able to kind of give you that little bit of insight, hopefully. So. I just think to start with, though, obviously, you know, you alluded to there in terms of Everton headed down under, having lost three games on the bounce. They weren't exactly very inspiring performances from Frank Lampard's side, neither one of the games. There's a lot of talk about the trip and, and, and why, you know, some fans question why, you know, a, a mid-season jolly up in some people's words was, was needed to Australia, you know, they, they should be on the training ground and all that work. But you wrote this in the, your Royal Blue, you know, before the games kicked off. But this was important for Everton to make, wasn't it? Not just, you know, on the pitch, a bit of bonding together, but also off the pitch commercially and, and becoming a stronger entity as a, as a, as a brand. Yeah, I really think this was a, a good thing. The timing wasn't great. And from a PR point of view, the way in which things coincided, you know, the optics weren't wonderful. And I think, you know, if you were working for Everton that week after, after the, the you know, certainly after the, the last Bournemouth defeat and you were there thinking, right, I've, I've got to kind of now start putting stuff out about the players being on Bondi Beach doing yoga and, you know, out and about in Australia. I think you know that the replies on social media aren't going to be particularly great. But for me, this this was a sensible thing to do, and it was a good thing. So obviously, the the agreements go out there in the first place was was signed a long, long time ago. You know, haven't haven't just gone. Oh, we've had a really bad week. Let's run to the other side of the world and and, and try and escape it all. You know, this is an agreement that's been in place for for some time. And you know, the reality is that everyone got six weeks to fill from Bournemouth to Wolves. They were always going to do a lot of training in between they were always going to go and do warm weather training, really. I think most Premier League clubs would do something out in the Middle East or, or elsewhere where they go and, you know, do do some training in better climates. And, you know, we've seen that with other teams. I mean, even sort of Sunderland, Ellis Sims for Sunderland's out in Dubai, or he was out in Dubai last week. So, you know, they're a, they're a kind of, you know, a mid-table championship club. So, so Evan, we're always going to go and do some warm weather training. That was always going to cost money as well. I mean, this way they managed, managed to go and do that warm weather training, play semi-competitive matches and actually get paid for it. You know, a lot of people in the summer, there were a lot of sticks to beat Everton with. And one of them was the the kind of the commercial performance of the club, the, the, the idea that it wasn't seeking to maximise its opportunities. Well, and signing up for this trip, they've gone over there. As I say, they've saved money with the warm weather camp, but they've made money as well. You know, there's a, a seven-figure profit that's been made from this trip so after all the expenses of going out there and team hotels and, and things like that you know, it's a million pound plus and when you look at things like financial you know, fair play the profit and sustainability things when you look at the fact that this is a january transfer window that's coming up which is you know money is going to be tight but business clearly needs to be done things like that matter and then the other thing as well is it's, it's good for the brand you know it, it takes everton to an audience that they haven't been to for quite some time um, you know, get to re-engage with fans that you know don't normally get to see them, and they get to promote themselves, so, as I say, to a, to a brand new audience. And you know, I, I can understand the 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 unease that some fans might have felt when you know we're still scarred by that double defeat in Bournemouth. You know, especially fans that travelled a thousand miles in five days to watch those two atrocious performances. I can understand when less than a week later they're looking at pictures of, of players doing yoga on Bondi Beach and thinking. Oh, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what I really think about this. But if you get away from that and take a step back, like I think that it was a good thing for the club to be doing. And, and ultimately, you know, and we'll, we'll get on to this. I think it probably 
did end up being a decent trip for for morale and a few of the players as well. So you speak there, Joe, about you know morale, but you know when you first arrived in Australia and obviously you know had the first game and stuff. What what was the mood in the country sense? Because obviously, like you say, you know Everton did arrive in Australia on the back of three straight defeats. A lot of worry, you know, a lot of worry people, a lot of worry people still to this day. You think that no, it's going to be another long few hard months to come once the football resumes. What was the mood in and around the camp? Because obviously, you know, it, it's tough for fans to take, but it can also be tough for players and coaching staff to take. What what they witnessed in the seven days, you know, before the, the football domestic football season ended. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, going into the, the Celtic game, I think, I think there was a, a degree of, of concern, really, because, you know, we'll have all seen it that week. The, the, the squad that Everton took to Australia wasn't the strongest squad. Now, they, they couldn't do a lot about that. Obviously, you know, you had Onana, Cody, Pickford and Gay are all out on World Cup duty. So that's four of the starting 11 are gone. You know, Awobi and Coleman um, and Rondon as well were out on international duty. I don't really know the thought process in, because obviously Nathan Patterson was due to play for Scotland in friendlies, but he went on the trip in the same way that Celtic pulled a lot of their Scottish internationals outside of away from that squad so they could make it on the trip. I don't quite know what the conversations were between are you going to come or are you not if you're on international friendly duty. Obviously, someone like Seamus Coleman, club captain, it's important he goes out there, but also bearing in mind the stage he's at in his career, I, I, you know, I, I don't think it's unfair to say that it probably won't get too many more opportunities to to go out and represent his country. So that would have been important for him. Then you look at the injury situations as well. So you have James Garner out injured, Dominic Calvert-Lewin out injured. You know, it kind of, and then you had Ben Godfrey and and obviously feel there's some questions around Godfrey being there. Godfrey Godfrey didn't go because of a setback in injury or his recovery or anything like that. He he didn't go for for personal reasons, which you are perfectly legitimate and which I won't go into more detail unless, you know, he puts them out there himself. So, so you kind of ended up there with a real makeshift squad. Obviously, it filled with under-21s as well. And under-21s, you know, like to Tom Cannon, Stan Mills got opportunities against Bournemouth in the, in the last uh, week before the break. And, and they, they have been subject to some calls for them to be involved in first-team action, particularly Tom Cannon, because, you know, we can all see that everyone's struggling for goals up top. And he, you know, one thing he is, is, is a goal scorer. The question with him is, you know, where is he at in, his, in terms of his, his development and, you know, what can he do at a senior level and what can he do at potentially in the, in the Premier League? And obviously there are understandable questions about that because he's, he's still only 19. But, you know, it was an opportunity for them. But I think going into Celtic, see, this was Ange Post. Yeah, the, the trip was always going to be around Celtic. Celtic were the first, one of the first teams to sign up. It was initially going to be them and Rangers, not them and Everton. Rangers pulled out because they thought it was effectively going to be a big fanfare for the Australian Ange Postacoglu's homecoming back to Australia, glorious homecoming, and they were going to be bit part players. So I think because of that, because of the sentimental value this trip had to Ange, I think you know Celtic were taking it reasonably seriously. Had a, I say, they pulled players out of the Scotland squad, and and had a reasonably strong side. So I think there was there was a degree of concern, I think, from within the Everton camp that they had a really bad last week before the break. They were going out to. Australia with a makeshift squad. They were going to play Champions League opposition that were up for it. Whatever and could really have done without would be a situation where they go and put in a disappointing position and get played off the part by Celtic, which would only just add to everybody's woes. So I think there was a little bit of concern. Obviously, they were aware of the the kind of the optics of going out there in the first place. I say, even though it's outside their control, but bearing in mind where the momentum was heading, they were already aware of that. 
I think there was a degree of kind of concern, maybe from not not necessarily within the dressing room as such, but more from probably the wider club side as to what might unfold on this trip. Obviously, it didn't end up that way. You know, within the camp itself, I think there was a degree of, and I said I said this within the dressing room, within Frank Lampard and within some of the players. I think there was a sense that it was a good time for a break and a good time to kind of take a step back and, and just reflect on where things might have been going wrong for the last few few weeks. And then a, and a degree of hope that it presented an opportunity to kind of carry on working on some of those areas. Everton had a week inside, but they did have their, if you take Dominic Calvert-Lewin out of it, they did have what is essentially their first choice attack out there. Neil Mopai, Anthony Gordon, Damari Gray, Dwight McNeil. This was an opportunity for them to carry on working together, try and figure themselves out. Obviously, you know, McNeil and Mopay are, are still very new to that squad. Gray and Gordon are playing, being asked to play very, very different roles to what they have done for Everton, or certainly were to do for Everton last season. So, you know, I think there was a sense that it, this could be a good thing, but that was also tinged with the nerves as what could happen if, you know, if, if things went wrong against Celtic. Obviously, you know, just, just on the Celtic game then, not a classic, I don't think, <laughs> by any means. Not one that will live long in the memory. But it will live long in the memory for one man called Isaac Price, who I think it's safe to say stole the show. Absolutely. I mean, if uh, nobody had a better tour than, than Isaac Price, and you know, we're speaking here on Tuesday, if you pick up the Echo today or go online, I've got a big exclusive interview with, with Isaac from speaking to him after he then had a, another excellent 90 minutes in the Western Sydney Wanderers game. You know, he... He was always, according to Frankie, he was always going to get minutes uh, in, in the Celtic game because the way he's been performing, not just for the under-21s, but when he's trained with, with the first team. But that became even more likely with the unfortunate news that Tom Davis was going to have to fly home because of a knee issue just that he sustained the day before the Celtic game. So, I mean, we've already spoken about the makeshift makeup of that Everton squad. Well, come, you know, come, come kick off at the Accor Stadium against Celtic, Evan only had two recognised central midfielders in that whole squad. You know, Abdullah Decore and, and under-21 star Isaac Price. So I think that it was clearly a big opportunity for him, but I mean, it was one that he really did excel. I mean, there's been a lot of excitement around Isaac Price. It's been quite interesting, really, when I think the back end of last season, Isaac Price was probably the at the forefront of, of the under of the crop of under-21s that are coming through when it comes to first-team you know, fixtures in mind. I think so. He got his debut against Arsenal. The last game of the season came off the last 12 minutes and then went off to the summer. He, he was one of the ones that went out to, to America, but it felt that in America it was really a case of Stan Mills and Lewis Warrington stealing the show, maybe a bit of Reese Welsh as well. And they continued to do so when we came back to England and carried on with the friendlies. So it felt like the momentum went away from, from Isaac Price. But what was interesting was in the first part of this season, whenever you spoke to Frank about you know, what's going on with Warrington, what's going on with Mills, what's going on with, say, Cannon or Welch, he would always, as part of his response, he would always bring Isaac Price's name into the conversation. So if somebody else hadn't mentioned it, he would bring Isaac Price in. I, I think it's he's clearly very highly thought of uh, um, in, in the squad, in the back room, and obviously he got his chance, and, you know, he was the bright spark. Obviously, the Celtic performance wasn't particularly good. It was more of what we've seen, you know, Everton kind of, struggled to exert any control over that game, didn't really win the midfield battle. But in fairness to them, they also weren't cut open particularly. You know, they, they didn't concede a lot of clear-cut opportunities. And they did spring a couple of useful counter-attacks. They did pose a threat throughout that game. They did create good opportunities, which obviously development and what we've seen towards the back end of, that, of, of the 
fixtures before the the break. And and I's a price throughout all this, you know, especially bearing in mind Abdullah Dakori went off at half time. So Isaac Price ended up being the only recognised centre midfielder in the midfield three of him and the two wingers, McNeil and Gordon, against Champions League opposition, who were taking the game seriously. And, you know, he never he never looked out of place. You know, he was very good. The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. I've got to ask, because there was some raised eyebrows, I think, and some amusement from Everton supporters saying it on social media. How did Everton win the City Super Cup after playing one match? Yeah, um, it was announced Jordan well after the Celtic game when they won on penalties that they had won the City Super Cup, but they still have one more game to play against the team who'd already beat Celtic. So technically, you know, what what was your understanding of the stadium? Obviously, you, you know, you one of the yeah, you know, but for for people who've been listening and, and following the Echoes coverage of Everton for a long time, they know that I I only took up this job uh, at the back end of March, beginning of April last year. But my background is. Is a news is a news journalist and finding things out and getting to the truth, getting to the bottom of things, and you know, in the lines of work that I've done for the past twelve years or so, it's not always easy. But normally, you can get to to a right answer. Normally, there's a document you can find something or a court case you can follow or something else like that. In football football journalism, it's almost more like politics. Like things are so so grey, and sometimes if no one's willing to give you an answer. You just can't get it. And I've been for ages. I've been asking. What is the format of the Sydney Super Cup? How how can somebody well one is there a piece of silverware and two how do you win it or w- win the title in a scenario where you have three games between four sides and <laughs> you know it was bizarre and nobody would ever come back to me with an answer so so even going into that Celtic game obviously Celtic had already lost their first game against Sydney FC which obviously came as a surprise um, and I was sitting there against so so you know you were there thinking well. I mean, if Everton were to win this game against Celtic, they must have a decent chance because Celtic wouldn't be able to win it at least. So going into that game, I still didn't have the the answer. You know, I'd, I'd gone to the club, I'd gone to tournament organisers. And then with about 10 minutes to go in that match, you know, sitting in the press box and there was me. And then obviously, as we said, I was the only dedicated Everton reporter out there. There were a couple of dedicated Celtic reporters there from the Scottish press and, and one or two kind of local Australian reporters just kind of, you know, they're covering the thing for their local newspapers and websites and, and things like that. And about 10, 15 minutes ago in the Celtic match, obviously it was nil-nil and all of a sudden we started getting these Tano announcements saying, oh, you know, if, if nobody can find a winner, there'll be a penalty shootout to decide who wins the Sydney Super Cup. And we were all looking at each other and the press was thinking, all right, <laughs> weren't expecting this, didn't know there were yeah. going to be penalties. You know, I've since, I've since asked Everton whether or not they knew there was a penalty shootout and the suggestion seems to be that they kind of found out late on the day, you know, maybe just as they were kind of going through the warm-ups and stuff like that. They certainly didn't have a list, you know, when it came to who the penalty takers were, it was a case of the players who were on the pitch at the full-time whistle volunteering to Frank, you know, and obviously several of them told me that. Nathan Patterson told me that, Tom Cannon, Stan Mills all told me that because they, they're three of the, the, the penalty takers for Everton. 
So, you know, there was no like big plan to go in and there was no, oh, I better bring on so-and-so with five minutes ago because he's a great penalty taker or anything like that. It, it really was a kind of a bizarre scenario. I mean, I must admit it was, it was actually quite a welcome one for me because, you know, with 10 minutes to go, like, you know, part of my insight into my job, part of my job is to basically have a match report that is coherent and far than normally somewhere between about eight and 800 and a thousand words long that's normally far about 15 minutes after kickoff 15 20 minutes after sorry after the final whistle and i was there and obviously i had the body of the report but in terms of what the actual story what the headline what the main my main takeaway was going to be i was struggling because it was essentially a nil nil's roar in which evan hadn't particularly excelled but they had you know created a few opportunities but it was a struggle so being able to you know 20 minutes later, right, that Anthony Gordon kept his composure to roll in a penalty and seal Everton the Sydney Super Cup champions obviously made my job a lot easier. So, And it certainly became easier as the penalty shootout you know, unfolded because very, very quickly Everton had the initiative. So it didn't really feel there's any jeopardy in it. Obviously, you know, in terms of the the downtime almost, you know, between the Celtic game and the, the Western Sydney game, a lot of people probably would have imagined that you were out shopping, you know, sightseeing. Mm-hmm. But we're obviously a very busy time for over in Australia. Obviously, you, you're fortunate to get some time with Frank Lampard. Obviously, you know, we put some exclusives out on with in the Echo paper over the weekend and, on, and on, they're still on the site now, which if, if no one's read them. But how did you find, you know, how was Frank, you know, what was his mood? What was, you know, his feeling? Because obviously, you know, like we've always alluded to, it must be a bit of a stressful, concerning time for him heading over to Australia after what he's witnessed in, in them three games in the build-up. Yeah, well, because I spoke to him after the Celtic game, which he was, you know, relatively pleased that he, he led Everton to Sydney Super Cup glory. And uh, that was a Sunday night in Australia and then the game was on, on on the Wednesday. So Monday, you know, the squad had had a day off essentially, then Tuesday, both a bit of training. So yeah, for the Monday and Tuesday for me it was very much a case of you know, for people who were listening and I'm not sure how this works, you know, I'm completely independent from Everton. I haven't travelled out there with the squad or anything like that. And I haven't gone out there with the promise of any access or anything like that. It's very much a case of you know, the Echo independently paid to send the reporter out there and it's a case of trying to get as much as you can and, you know, essentially trying to, you know, obviously put requests into the club and, and see if you'll be able to get people speaking to you. You know that you know that you'll have the framework of the two matches, which obviously Everton don't control whether or not you can go to them. So you know you'll be able to report on them, have the press conferences after. So worse comes to worse, you know, you'll you'll get Frank after those games. Um and then you know that there's a degree of kind of um, almost public relations opportunities, things like that, open training sessions, um, things that the organisers put on. So, for instance, the organisers in between the Celtic match and the Western Sydney Wanderers match kind of put on their own little press call with Ashley Cole. So, you know, th- that was an opportunity for me to speak to Ashley Cole without having to go through the club. But anything beyond that is very much a case of me going out there and trying to have to make the most of it. One of the things I was trying to do out there, I was out there and failed was uh, Jack Rodwell plays for Sydney FC. So I was trying to see if I could sit down with him. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to get that access. But I was able, you know, very lucky, very fortunate to, you know, to get a lot of time with Everton's players and particularly with Everton's backroom staff. You know, they were quite generous. I was was pleased, I think, not necessarily surprised, but pleased that they were willing to be so open. It was quite a difficult time. I think... You know, they they able to give me a bit of access and a bit of so I could get a bit of insight into what the you know what the thought process was at the club and you know like, like you alluded to there you know I got got forty minutes to sit down with, with with Frank Lampard and you know it was it was a forty minutes that, that like I took seriously you know I haven't gone out there just to say 
you know, oh, you're great and things like that. You know, I've gone and then asked him what he thinks about the World Cup and England's chances because, you know, people listening to this, that's not really top of their agenda. The top of their agenda, same for, for me, it's got six weeks here where Everton are one point and one place above the relegation. So I don't want to know what's happening. How, how are you going to fix it? What's, 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 you know, what do you think about now and what's your plan to kind of improve things? And, you know, luckily I was able to put those questions to him and, and, and got what I think were relatively straight answers. You know, people can you know, implore people to read what he says and then they can come to their own conclusions as to whether or not they, they agree with what Frank says. But, um, but at least, you know, we've had, by going out there, we've had the opportunity to ask those questions and, and, you know, fans could at least get an insight into into the thought process. So, you know, it was quite interesting. It was really interesting. And this wasn't just from Frank, but when I look back on that past, that last week before the World Cup break, you know, I look at, there was the Leicester game, the Bournemouth game, the Bournemouth game. And for me, it was a bad week and it was three bad games. I, you know, I wrote, I think the, the first line of my match report from the Leicester game was it was Mo, Evans' most disappointing performance of the season so far. And, and and I genuinely felt that and it can be hard sometimes because, you know, you're on the spot and, you know, a couple of hours later, you might watch some highlights or have a little think about what Frank said after the game or something like that. And, you know, come to slightly different conclusions. But, you know, you, a couple of hours later, your, your match report is essentially redundant. But, you know, I, I still felt that because, I, I, you know, we had the Palace game where they played so well. We had the Fulham game where they struggled a little bit, but they showed a lot of resilience. And then, you know, going into a Leicester game, it just felt... Always going to be a tough opposition, but if Everton won, they were going to be at the top half the table. And that felt realistic at the time. It didn't feel didn't feel daft. And I and I felt that Everton were, were comprehensively beaten, if I'm honest. So one of the things that I was asking Frank was, I got the sense that there's no hiding away from the Bournemouth games, particularly the last game. But I think a sense in the camp that the Leicester game isn't part of that bad week or that, that negative momentum. They, the Leicester game, I think they see as what well was actually a performance in which the players had done what the backroom staff had asked them to do. The game plan had, to a certain extent, worked. You know, the 50-50s just hadn't gone their way. So, you know, and I, and I was asking Frank about this, like, what, you know, why do you have that mindset? Because I'm not going to pretend I'm particularly good tactical analysis or anything like that. But as I was saying, it felt disappointing to me. And his, his view was, well, look, set the team up in a way that I thought would be effective. And I think they were effective. He was saying, you know, first five minutes, create that golden opportunity. Alex Iwobi puts it wide. Well, if Alex Iwobi scores, it's a different game. You know, get through the first half, nil-nil going five minutes. Yuri Thielman scores an absolute worldie to, to separate a side. Sometimes you have to put your hands up and say, you know, there's only so much you can do. We've had a great chance. We've missed it. We're nil-nil. We're competitive. And then someone does something sensational like that. Okay. Half-time, regroup, get the players in again, ask them to do a job. They come out, they do it straight away again because Dominic Calvert-Lewin has a one-on-one. If he scores that, changes the game again. Obviously, he didn't. And then, you know, the second half was was end-to-end a bit more even than the first half. But, you know, the second goal ultimately did just come from Everton committing players forward in order to try and get an equaliser, you know, at the death. But I found it really interesting that because, as I say, from my point of view, I found it quite a disappointing performance. But from their point of view, the team had done what they'd asked them to do and it was fine. It was fine margins and fine margins has been a theme of Everton's season and more often than not, they've gone against him. But I can at least understand his point of view, even if I don't necessarily you know, fully agree with it. Like I thought Everton were outplayed in that first half, but I can at least see where the positives that they're trying to take from it are. 
Uh, and the other thing that I asked him about was we um, saw this replication in the Bournemouth game the following Saturday in the Premier League was the position of, of, of Amadou Anana. You know, in both those games, he played much further forward. And it felt like felt like Everton had been really solid against Crystal Palace or West Ham when Onana and Idrissa Guy played in front of the, the back four and, 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 you know, kind of almost had a defensive mindset. That felt the, the, you know, almost the best way to do it. And then in, in that last week, just before the break, he, he pushed Onana up and it just felt that, you know, once Bournemouth or Leicester beat that initial press, it did feel like, you know, Everton's midfield was overrun. And, you know, basically Frank's explanation, he was quite honest. And I, and I think, you know, I think the honesty has to be applauded to a little bit. He basically said, we're still trying to work out what to do with Amadou and Nana. We're the most effective way of using them. And it all comes down to essentially space of about 10 yards. Where in that 10 yards do you want him to be between Awobi and Gay? Um, you know, Frank Lampard's, he's reluctant to move Alex Awobi from... And you know, an advanced central midfielder from an eight into a to a ten because he, he thinks he can do such a, a good job more in the middle third of the pitch. Obviously, he sees he's using Idrissa Gay as a six, and as I say, he's trying to work out what's best to do with Anana. And I think I think the thought process is that yes, Everton are more defensively solid when Anana and Gay are playing alongside each other, but it does also bear in mind how kind of disjointed the attack has been this season it does also lead to difficult games where they don't create very much the Newcastle job the Newcastle game being the probably the worst one where everything were quite solid I mean it was only a very good goal from Almiron that beat them but they just didn't create anything at all and I think you know I, I think Frank's in Frank's head at the minute and obviously it's, I think there's a, a degree of trying to almost think overthinking Anana's role because they haven't quite worked out how the wingers and Mope are linking up, you know, in the absence of Dominic Calvert-Lewin. But I think they're trying to find a way in which they 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 have more attacking options and threat and ability to play between the lines and against, say, Newcastle and therefore moving forward. But I think there's awareness that if they push him too far forward, then there's a danger that, say, like Leicester or Bournemouth, then, you know, he can get taken out by, by some slick passing and then Everton are exposed. So I think you know, with with that, obviously you've got to remember Amadou Anana is only 21 years old. He's only a couple of months into his Premier League season. You know, he's still in an Everton side where Alex Wobi's playing in centre midfield for the first time probably in his career. And Idrissa Gay has come back into a new squad, and you know, he's got Dwight McNeil around him, who's new to the squad. He's got two centre backs behind him that are new to the squad. He's got Mope in front of him that's new to the squad. You know, like I think there's just a few growing pains and teething problems. Frank Lampard's very keen to change the style of that into a far more progressive style. Amadou Anana will be crucial to that, but I think I think they're just learning at the minute. Trying, they've got no choice having to figure it out on the job with him. And I think there's an acceptance that they're still in that learning curve. So that was a very very long answer to kind of what their thought process in the camp was. But there you go. As for Bournemouth, they, you know, Bournemouth in the league, there was, there's no hiding from that. They were just very, very disappointed with that performance. The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. In terms of, you know, for anyone who's, who's read, the, I think it was the second part, but excuse me if I'm wrong, there are plans afoot already for the January transfer window and, and, and targets and, and areas have, have been identified in, in which they want to improve Frank Lampard's improving squad. 
Yeah, absolutely. They have a short list of players. Um, you know, one of the reasons Kevin Fowler didn't go out there, the director of football, is, is because he was a bit concerned about his ability to make him take important phone calls, you know, phone calls when, you know, the time difference is 11 hours and having been out there myself, it was very, very difficult to kind of do anything, you know, link in professionally with home uh, be, because of that. So I can completely understand that. You know, I think there is a plan. They know that, you know, they're, they're, they're under no illusions that they need to kind of strengthen attacking wise. The hope is that they can bring in two attacking players. They have profiles, they have names. I think at the minute they're, might be making kind of tentative exploratory moves, but the reality is that January is already always a notoriously difficult window to do business in. The World Cup's going to make it even harder to do business in. And I think there's a, a belief that basically no one's really going to be able to make start making proper moves until players have started returning back from the World Cup and they can assess, you know, clubs can assess what their own situations are because they'll, everyone will have their own plans, but a lot of them will be heavily affected by the state their players come back from the World Cup and whether or not they come out of injuries, whether they come out with fatigue and, and things like that. So, you know, Everton are exploring attacking signings. We know they need them. There will also be an emphasis on outgoings this January. They secured quite a lot at the back end of the summer transfer window, albeit most of them on loan. You know, I think that there will be significant efforts to try and move squad fringe players on in January. I think that's... I don't think that's essential to being able to do attacking business in January, but I think if they wanted to look elsewhere within the squad as well, then I think that would be dependent on outgoings. So, you know, but there is, you know, Frank's very clear that there, there is a plan in place. How it all unfolds, we'll all have to wait and see. There are factors outside of Evans' control at the moment, but I think most fans will be relieved to know that there is a degree of coordination between Frank and Kevin. You know, there is an understanding of what they need to do and it's the understanding is probably the same as what most fans will have looked at over the last few months and, and gone, that's it. Yeah, probably a bit light on attacking options and they need to address that area and that's what they're planning to do. Obviously, in terms of the, the Western Sydney game, it was a you know, comfortable 5-1 win in the end. Andy Gordon back to hat-trip, Neil Morpe was also on target. But, you know, I think the big moment of the game and the, you know, the real nice moment of the match was Tom Cannon getting his first senior goal for the club. Obviously, you know, it capped off what has been quite the month for the youngster when you think of, you know, his first appearance, a brace against Paris Saint-Germain in the in Premier League International Cup from the 21s, his first Premier League appearance and now his first goal. It's all just fallen form nicely for the youngsters. And Joe, and you spoke to him as well after that goal and, you know, what, what he must have been buzzing, you know, smiling from ear to ear. Yeah, I was kind of... In the in the bowels of the the Combank Stadium on on what I say what was Wednesday night and came across Tom Cannon and he was absolutely buzzing you know he he was over the moon it was clearly a big moment for him and it it capped off what had been a massive fortnight for him obviously made his senior debut against Bournemouth in the Carabao Cup made his Premier League debut against Bournemouth the following Saturday and then obviously came out on this tour scored a penalty in the penalty shootout against Celtic and then. You know, had that moment, had that moment against Western Sydney Wanderers, and you know it was just nice. It was it's nice to be able, to, and that was something that was really positive. I think from the from the trip in general, the under twenty ones largely excelled. Stan Mills, Isaac Price, Tom Cannon in particular. You know, they 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 had good trips, and you know it feels like Tom Cannon and Stan Mills are kind of almost like set, almost kind of joined at the hip at the moment. You know, they they both made it. They both came on against. Um, Bournemouth in the Cup together. They were both involved in the, the matchday squad. Obviously, Stan Mills didn't get on in the Premier League game against Bournemouth. 
Um, and then, you know, they both came on together against Western Sydney Wanderers and it was Mills who essentially got the assist for, for Karen's goal. So, you know, it was, yeah, it was a nice moment. He was, he was over the moon with it. I think, you know, it clearly meant a lot to him. Um, and, you know, lucky enough to speak to Stan Mills, lucky enough to speak to, to Isaac Price. And I think they were really grateful for the opportunities they got. And, um, you know, I think it gave them a lot of confidence as, as well. You know, Tom Cannon's a goal scorer. And you, you'd see that. Obviously, he was a, a you know, predatory instincts in the box to pick up on a goalkeeper mistake for the goal. Probably should have scored you know, another chance. He had about 15 yards out uh, later on in the game, but put it over. And then, you know, real nice kind of shift of weight on the edge of the box to create half a yard for himself, force a really good save from the keeper late on. Yeah, I think Tom Cannon thinks he's, he's ready to do a job at, at senior level. He really wants to kind of try and force his way into the Premier League squad as well. I think it's, I, from what I've seen of Tom Cannon, I remember going to the under-21s and watching the under-21s against Man United under-21s, uh, kind of at the beginning of the season, game finished two each. And obviously we know Man United's academy is one of the most renowned in the world. And just watching Tom Cannon in that game, he just he just bullied Man United. You know, he, he got his two goals. He could have had more. He could have had a few assists. You know, from what I've seen of him in the under-21s, he's... He's bet he like he's you know he's ready for the step up and I think he's kind of we might see this against Mansfield in the the Papa John's Trophy we've seen it in the games at at tournaments so far you know when he's come up against senior players from lower league opposition again he's he's been competitive he's been able to hold his own so whether the next step for him is kind of more involvement in the Premier League with, with Everton or perhaps kind of find an opportunity to go out on loan in January which especially if Frank's looking to bring in new attackers might end up being the most plausible kind of move for his development. You know, like I think there's a player there to, to get excited about. Obviously we don't want to put too much pressure on him or, or, or anybody else. He's still, still very, very young and still developing, but he's, he's a goal scorer. He was, he was buzzing after the game. It was a, it was a lovely moment and it was lovely to see how much it meant to him. No, just to, to finish up, Ben Joe went on, you know, the Australian trip and the tour. I think that would be the most pleasing thing going for Frank Lampard is that, you know, he will return to the UK with plenty of you know, food for thought and, and you know, he will have plenty to think about and he will hope that the confidence gains in them two games over the last, you know, week or so will we'll stand his side in good stead when they, you know, restart their Premier League campaign on Boxing Day against Wolves. Yeah, no one can and I don't think anybody is, is getting carried away or over the top of what happened in Australia. Obviously, you know, there was... Yeah, like, you know, it's a makeshift squad and, you know, they're still kind of, you know, against Celtic, they have still issues that, you know, that we've seen in, in, in the Premier Leagues and in, in, in the Cup so far this season. I don't think anybody's thinking that, you know, a penalty shootout win over Celtic and, you know, the win over Western Sydney won, this is going to pave the way to, you know, it's job done and they don't have to think about addressing anything else before Wolves. I don't, I don't think that's the case at all. But one thing I definitely think is that, the squad, the manager, the club as a whole is in a better place for that trip. It could have, you know, we spoke to beginning, you know, there was a fear it could have gone badly. It didn't go badly at all. It went pretty well. And, you know, as an opportunity to kind of, you know, just take stock on on what happened, you know, particularly last week before the break, as an opportunity to kind of re-engage with a different section of the fan base, as an opportunity to kind of, work on something yeah there were some nice little link ups between Mope and Gordon and McNeil and Gray against Western Sydney Wanderers and we can't read too much into that because obviously you know the opposition didn't make it hugely difficult for them but you know 
on the flip side, it was only in the summer that they went and lost the local opposition, got hammered by Minnesota United 4-0. And, you know, everybody was, and rightly so, everybody was going, oh, that's a real warning sign. So, you know, we know that these things can go badly for Everton. This didn't, and we should take some comfort from that. So, you know, I, I think it was a... I think it was a good show. I, I spoke to I spoke to Neil Mope on on the trip as well, and obviously there's been a lot of focus around him and the fact that obviously he got that goal against West Ham, played well in the derby, missed a, missed his chance, but played well in the derby, got his goal against West Ham, hasn't really kicked on from there. But yeah, you know, you'll see it in a piece that that, that that I'm writing at the moment, so it'll be published in the next coming days. You know, there's there's a real desperation there from him, a real intent and determination on him to kind of do well, to push on, to want to help Everton. Um, and you know, I think. We forget the you know, Neil Mope has only been at that in that squad for ten Premier League games. You know, he he he, he joined, you know, he joined right at the back end of the transfer window. Um, you know, there was a administrative mix up which prevented him from playing against Leeds, you know, so his debut was against Liverpool. I think, you know, when you look at Mope, I think it, one of the things that's probably been difficult for him is the fact that I think he's really I don't think things have been set up for him to succeed. I think so so far, there's been a lot of almost playing as if they were playing towards Dominic Calvert-Lewin. Except instead of having Dominic Calvert-Lewin, a big powerhouse target man up front, they've had you know five at seven. Neil Mopai is a completely different player. So you know, I, I think there's whether or not he'll do well at Everton remains to be seen. But it's definitely a determination from him to do so. You know, he's working hard, and I think he's a positive influence in in that camp. So so yeah. And the other thing was it was you know both from the club's perspective, I'm sure, but from a personal perspective as, as well. It was great to go out there and see so many fans, you know, like they you know, went on a, a boat trip on Sydney Harbour with with, with with 150 Everton fans. There was another trip after that with another 150 and they could have sold another boat. And, you know, I know that when you look at the pictures from the matches, it's not as if the state, the stands are, you know, thronging with people and things like that. But you've got to remember that the first game was in an 80,000 capacity stadium and, you know, 40,000 people were there to watch it. And that's still a hell of a lot of people. And all the events that Everton went to were, were well attended. You know, there's, you know, there's, there's a, there's a good fan base for Everton out in Australia is absolutely huge. You know, maybe not, but obviously you have things like the Tim Cahill factor and others and, you know, stuff like that will only help. And it was nice to, as I say, speak to fans, speak to, listeners of, of, of this podcast, you know, give a shout out to um, Rick and his son, Owen, who I met before the Western Sydney Wanderers game. You know, they, it was a real, real delight and pleasure to meet them and then to hear what they think about our coverage and that as well. And just to kind of hear, and I found this really interesting in America as well, actually. It's, it's very interesting to hear the perspective of fans that are outside England and watch it from perhaps not quite within the same bubble as what they, they think of things as well. So obviously everyone's united, I think, and hoping that, being slightly worried about where Everton are now and hoping that things get better when they uh, when they resume on Boxing Day against Wolves. But um, but you know it was a real privilege to go out there and to see you know, so many fans and meet them and obviously to follow Everton as well. Just before we finish, Joel, there was another piece of Everton news that dropped on Monday night. Me and you spoke at length yesterday in the office about Everton hopefully getting an ideal FA Cup draw and what that would mean. I think we can both agree Manchester United's away is far from ideal. Yeah, it's a disaster, isn't it? I mean, and Everton shouldn't have any real fear going into that. Manchester United are a side that I think Everton can go toe to toe with. It's just it's another very difficult game. It's it's, it's another scenario. It feels, like are, it feels like there's a lot of this for Everton at the moment. I'm sure a lot of supporters will say it goes goes back years and years and years. But like every time there's an opportunity for things to go Everton's way, they don't tend to. 
you know, things kind of, I'm not saying there's a, they conspire against Everton, but there's nothing's ever easy for the club. You know, it, January looks like a very big month for Everton. And it looks like it has the potential to be a very big month for Frank Lampard. Yeah, that Wolves game when they go back is huge. And then it's followed by Man City, which I suppose is, to some extent, it's a free hit. But obviously, you know, it's a game they're not necessarily expected to get points out of. So if they don't beat Wolves, there's every chance that come Man City after the Man City game, they're in the relegation zone. And then with a big game to Brighton, then following a big game against Southampton, and what could be a massive game against West Ham. You know, I'm looking at that game in mid-January and thinking, depending on how the teams restart, that could be a make-or-break game for, for Lampard or Moyes. Whether you know, we can close to the time, and hopefully it doesn't get there for Frank, we can discuss the merits as to whether or not it should be. Personally, I think Everton are in a scenario where they need to have patience in a manager and give somebody time to turn things around. The time means multiple transfer windows. You know, if they... Everyone wants sustainable progress. There is, and Frank made this point out there, saying, you know, there are going to be difficult moments throughout this journey. You know, no matter no matter who, and I think that's the case from no matter who's in charge, no matter who's in charge, no matter how much money they have, and no nobody else would get any different kind of backing financially. You know, this is, there are going to be difficult moments for Everton as they look to kind of, you know, turn the ship around and, and have sustainable progress. But he could well be under a bit of pressure come the, come early January. And, you know, yeah, I was just thinking it would be, you know, you can, obviously Everton can't take anything for granted. We know that. But nice home game against the lower league opposition on the 7th of January and might be an opportunity for reflection for a bit of a morale boost and win or something like that, just to kind of ease a little bit of the pressure. And, you know, instead Everton have had that, probably got the one in seven or eight fixtures that they could probably do without. And, you know, again, a difficult January starts to look even more difficult. I don't know what what are your thoughts on it, Connor. Uh yeah, I was not impressed when when it was drawn out last night. It's safe to say. I do buy the thing. You know, you've got to beat someone. You've got to beat decent teams along the way if you're going to win the cup. You know that that is true. You know, you've got to beat someone. But I thought, you know, considering that all the ties Evan could have had, I think that one of the toughest, isn't it? That you know they could have been drawn against them. You know, it, it just kind of makes, like you say there, it makes January even bigger now, doesn't it? Because, you know, you don't want to get in a position where, you know, you're out the FA Cup, you're fighting relegation, haven't already been knocked out the, the League Cup the way we was. You know, it's, it's not, it's far from ideal, I think, is, is, is the way to look at it. But, you know, Everton have got to go there, they've got to believe, and they've got to, they've got to show that they can compete with these teams, haven't they? You know, ultimately, at the end of the day, like I say, if you're going to win the Cup, you've got to beat someone, someone good at some point. So, you know, there's no better place to start than Old Trafford in the third round. Yeah, and I do think Frank Lampard will take that game very seriously as well. You know, I think there are a few kind of, you know, when when, when they saw the Carabao Cup team, the 11 changes in the performance that, that followed, I think there was a, a bit of frustration, obviously. You know, we know about Evans, you know, long wait for success and silverware and, you know, determination from fans not to just give up on, on Cups. Now, Frank doesn't see that he did that against, against Bournemouth in the Carabao Cup. He thinks he picked, obviously, some of the changes were enforced through injuries anyway. Yeah, but he, picked, he still is thoroughly believes he picked a side that should have been able to do a job in that game, and the fact that they didn't is on the players. And 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 that I think with with the FA Cup, I don't think there'll be anything like that, unless I'm in a scenario where injuries and, and things of that mean that they have to kind of be a little bit clever about who they pick and make a few sacrifices. Yeah, you know, I think Frank understands the importance of the FA Cup to the club 
to the fan base. And, and I think obviously it's a difficult one in the sense that that is a very difficult game under any circumstances, but no doubt you'll take that very seriously. Right, Joe, we will leave things there. I think, you know, we have chewed the fat enough. But for anyone who's not read any of Joe's stuff so far from Australia, then please head over to the Echo website and do so. And there'll be plenty more to come in the coming days and weeks as we build up for Everton's return to action on Boxing Day against Wolves. But for now, you've been listening to the Royal Blue Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. You've been listening to the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.